I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I am basically preaching what we just sang, but my voice isn't as nice. It is wonderful to be back. I haven't actually been able to preach in five weeks, so it's great to be back. My name's Rob, if I haven't met you yet. Um, so thankful you're here. It's good to see you. I didn't, didn't want to like, interrupt you singing, and I didn't want to talk to you from the stage, but it's really good to see you. <laughs> um, so I talked to you from the stage, if you're wondering. That's what I did. The last four weeks, we have been going through what is the gospel, what is the gospel and what does it mean in our lives? And four weeks ago, uh, Will, to try to say it succinctly, said that Jesus took that which was not his fault, our brokenness, and made it his responsibility, thus exchanging the beauty of God for the ugliness of humanity, when we think about the gospel. Uh, Mark Turner, who we have just thoroughly enjoyed a great relationship with the pastor here on Sunday mornings, Elk Brook Community Church. He summarized the gospel as God is great, God is glorious, God is good, God is gracious. Uh, Cam Stewart, who on somewhat short notice we had to switch weeks around with, uh, preached on justification, sanctification, and righteousness. And to try to put those three words succinctly, which I thought Cam did an excellent job, is Jesus is the one who restores then we can go out in His righteousness as ambassadors of reconciliation. So what I want to stop, and even as you're thinking about the words we just sang uh, tonight, as we stop and as we think through what is the gospel and what does it mean to you, I want you to really think through and, and process through this question for a minute. And it's going to be awkwardly silent. So if you would, close your eyes and ask yourself, what is your response to the gospel? If you're here this evening and you don't know what the gospel is, the gospel just simply means good news. It is the good news that Jesus defeated sin and death, that we no longer have to pay the price for our sins, that we no longer have to spend eternity separated from God Almighty. And if you've never made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, then my prayer for you this evening is that you will uh, listen to the words of God and His Word and that you will respond in understanding our need to confess to God and, and to make Him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. If you're here this evening and, and you have already done that, you would say, yes, I, I understand that Jesus is forgiven my sins, that he is the leader of my life. And then when we ask that question, what is our response to the gospel, is it do you find yourself humbled? Do you find yourself thankful? All right, I'm going to ask you to open up your eyes. Maybe there's other words that came to your mind when you're thinking about what the gospel means to you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, Do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Do your best. Some versions say study. Study to show yourself an approved workman. And I thought it's interesting, and I've talked to some school teachers, and I've said, is it frustrating that you teach your class and you have no way of knowing if they're getting it? There's no way to know that year after year as you teach students that if they're learning what you're saying. And there's teachers in here, and I'm sure it's frustrating to you that you just stand up and you teach, then the students leave. You get them for a year, and then they're on to the next class. You're like, I don't know what they learned. Or the military. How weird is it in the military that uh, you enter the military and you sit in a room and you hear some lectures, then straight off the battle? I'm lying. None of those things happen. Only in church do you come in and hear a lecture and then leave. In school, there are these things called tests that you take or quizzes. So the teacher knows who's learning and who's not and who needs extra help and who should be in an advanced class. In the military, I can't believe no one got what I was saying. This is really sad. I, was, I have written down, pause for five or ten minutes of laughter. That's not written down. In the military, there's this thing called basic training. And it's not just lectures, believe it or not. Some of you in the military are going like, no, that's all I had, just a lecture. Maybe two. No, they put you out. You have to demonstrate that the concepts that are being taught are being learned and do it. Think of your job. Now, I've been in jobs where there's no training. It normally doesn't go well. But if you're not great, your boss normally knows. Why? Because a good workman studies. A good workman does their best. Somebody who actually wants to learn concepts and learn what they're doing and know how to do it well will work hard at it. They will do their best. And so, yes, tonight we are taking a pop quiz. You think I'm kidding? With my helpers, please hand out the quiz for tonight. You will need to break out a number two pencil and your Scantron sheet. No, I'm just kidding. There are pens located in front of you. We are no longer outside, and there are lights on, so I can see if you're actually writing down the answers or not. Jose, is it okay if I move this? I'm just realizing I'm only pacing on that half. So they're handing out. There's also some inserts in them. The questions will be up on the televisions behind me. But I want you to think through the answers. I want... I want you to think through the answers as we uh, go through. So don't answer right away quickly. Please don't try to answer questions in advance. That's why they're fill in the blank. And all the time that I was in college, I had this habit um, just before a test where I would remember as they were handing out the test that there was a test that day. <laughs> and I hadn't studied for it. And so then I would immediately go to the Lord in prayer 
and quote James, Lord, you said to ask for you for wisdom and you shall give it to us. And boy, do I need it right now. All right, so um, if you have it, pens out. Now, I also want you to know that if you are here and uh, like I said when talking about the gospel, if you have not made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, I don't expect you to take this quiz. And please excuse us for a moment as we, as we do this. Uh, we would love to have that conversation. Or, or take it and then afterwards please come and talk through with us. We want to have that conversation with you of what it is to know Jesus. So here we go. Question number one. Don't write down a yes or no, by the way. I will continue to explain. There's no time limit. I have until 8.30 tonight. Just kidding. Question number one, are you in awe of God? We talk about this pretty regularly. Are you in awe of God? Don't answer yet. On a scale of one to ten. Ten is worshiping God consumes every aspect of your life. One is the opposite of ten. Now you can answer. Write down a number. Are you in awe of God? No cheating. One to ten. One's the opposite of ten. (laughs) Ten's really good. One's really bad. Question number two. Again, don't answer right away. When was the last time you spent, keyword here, uninterrupted time in God's Word? When was the last time you spent, I'm going to put a time limit on it, 20 minutes, no interruptions, 20 minutes of just focusing on God, His Word, prayer, meditation, and then I want you to write down the date of the last time you spent at least 20 minutes an uninterrupted time in God's Word. As you're thinking through this, I want you to remember how much we talked about hunger and thirsting after righteousness as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. How much we talked about relying on God and the amount of time we spend in God's Word is a demonstration of how much we are relying on God. Uh, Rich Belotus, in his book, he writes, unless we are immersing ourselves in Scripture for the purpose of being encountered by God not merely observing the text, we will find our formations in Christ limited. God has spoken in Jesus and has spoken through his written word. We are invited to slowly enter that world. Tim Chester in his book, Everyday Church, writes, As Christians, we need internal reserves of hope to live on the margins. So we need to bank deposits of hope through the Word, into these internal reserves. We need to prepare our minds for action. We cannot drift into hostility. We need to be self-controlled. Are we showing self-control in our uninterrupted time alone with God? Question number three. And again, don't answer right away. When was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone? 
When was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone? Let me demonstrate what a gospel conversation is not. Oh, yeah, I go to church. That doesn't count. That is just explaining where you are at a certain time of the week. As long as there's nothing else going on. A gospel conversation is having a conversation with someone about what the gospel, what the good news of Jesus Christ means to you and how it's transforming your life and how it can transform theirs. It is this invitation to love God and be loved by God as only one can who has experienced that life in the gospel. Here's a hint before you answer. Remember, I haven't said answer yet. Whatever you talk about with people, whatever the majority of your conversations, wherever you are, revolve around, that is what is most important to you. That is the thing that you find awe in, and so you just assume others will as well. It doesn't take a long conversation with me to hear me talk about my wife. It doesn't take long to hear me talk about my kids. Depending on what season it is, it doesn't take long for me to talk about the Yankees, Rangers, or Giants. Some of you just started crying. That's what just made you cry. What we talk about, what our conversation is geared towards, what our go-to in a conversation is normally what we find our awe in. It is normally something that is fighting the place of the Almighty God in our life. And so how many conversations, when was the last time Write down a date if you can remember that you had a gospel conversation with someone. Now you can answer that. While you're answering that, when I was a young lad, uh, I was at this place where I ended up working four different times called Word of Life. And it is an international missions organization. It is a Bible college. It is camping. And I remember going to the family campground, and I think I was eight years old. And this man got up named Sumner Wimp. And Sumner Wimp was really old all the way back when I was eight. And he was a southern guy, and he'd always start off, and all through his message, you'd just hear him going, well, glory! And he was just this evangelist, if there ever was, if you're wondering, in my mind, when you read the gift of evangelism, to me, it's Sumner Wimp. And at Word of Life... There were rules, lots of them. And if you disobeyed the rules, you got a demerit point. There were certain things worth 15 points. One of them was swearing, dancing, going to the movies, doing cocaine, and the like. And when I was working in the dean's department, what I'd always tell someone is like, listen, you're going to do one, you might as well do them all. They're same worth points, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. For those with children in the room, I don't endorse those things. But I want you to emphasize those were the rules. And Sumner went. This old southern man would get up and say, tonight, after he'd say, well, glory, really loud, tonight I'm preaching a three-point message. Point number one. People are dying and going to hell. Point number two, we don't give a damn. And point number three, the majority of you care more about the word I just said than the fact that people are dying and going to hell. At that point, 
He didn't need to say anything else. And I remember that crystal clear in my mind the rest of my life. And then when I became a student there, at 22 years old, Sumner Wemp showed up to teach, and I just got this giant grin on my face. Nobody else in the room knew what was coming except me. <laughs> when was the last time you had a gospel conversation with someone? If we find our awe in God, it will be in our conversations. Sumner Wemp always says, just fall in love with Jesus, that's all you got to do. You fall in love with Jesus, it's all you can talk about. Next question. Are you serving in a local church? Are you serving in a local church body? Not just that, but do you see it as important? Romans 12, and there's many passages I could go to, but Romans 12, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So again, as we go through this, if we're finding awe in God, one of the questions we should ask are, are we serving? Are we actively being part of the body of Christ in a local member of believers called the church? And again, do you see it as important? Be honest with yourself. Remember, you're not turning these tests in, by the way. You don't have to put your name on them. These are just for you to keep as a reminder. Are you serving in a local church, and do you see it as important? Question number five. This is going to be a little tougher to answer for you. What is your biggest influence during the week? What influences you? Let me just stop by saying it's where your time is spent. Where do you go when you have time? And I know the first thing that you say is, oh, I just don't have time. Have you met my children? But then I came over to your house and realized by looking at your whatever streaming service you use, every night you watch 10 episodes of The Office for the 400th time, or whatever it is. Or if you go to your phone, I realize, like, you spent 10 hours on Instagram this last week. That's more than a full workday. So we all have something that we do, and when we start to examine our time and where it is spent, we'll actually begin to see, especially if we compare it to the last time we spent uninterrupted time in God's Word, we'll start to see what actually has a very big influence in our life. Tim Keller says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. So be honest, what is your biggest influence during the week? And then 
question number six. Again, don't answer it till I say to answer it. It's right back where we started from. Are you in awe of God? 2 Timothy 2.15 that we just read where he says, study or do your best. This is coming out of chapter 2 and we've preached on it many times, especially around what it is to actually disciple somebody. And uh, he says to do teach those who will then go on and teach others. But then he gives three examples, and he gives the farmer because he's a hard worker. He gives an athlete because he is disciplined and trained by the rules. And then he talks about the soldier. First, he talks about the soldier. The soldier, it says, when he's given an order, basically, and I'm summarizing, he does it. He doesn't get caught up in civilian affairs. He focuses on obeying the commanding officer. And then from that, those illustrations he comes into, and I'm going to start in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 2, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best. To present yourself to God as one, appoint, as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Paul David Tripp says, where you look for awe will shape the direction of your life. It just makes sense that your source of awe will control you, your decisions, and the course your story takes. So again, I ask, by the way, that's from the, the book, Awe, it is on that back shelf, it is $13, cannot suggest you, somebody, there's only one, you walk out of here with that book or you buy it shortly. But again, question number six, on a scale of one to ten, looking at all the questions you just answered, be honest, are you in awe of God? And just for you, has that number changed after walking through these questions? We call ourselves Hope Church. Why? Because we want everyone who comes in, everyone who talks to somebody as part of our church body to feel hope. And after taking this test, and I failed, by the way, and I came up with the questions. But after taking this test, we can feel very beat up, and we can feel shame. But there is a drastic difference between shame and conviction. Shame keeps telling you you are not good enough and it keeps you down, and we keep going through the same cycle over and over and over again. Conviction should lead to confession, talking to God, saying, God, I am sorry. God, I did this. And that should lead to repentance. Repentance is making a change, doing the opposite of what we've done. So when we take these things and, and we're looking and we beat ourselves up and you're like, man, I did it. It's been two months, two years, or I've never spent time in God's Word uninterrupted. 
And we can beat ourselves up and lead, but understand Spirit is at work. Spirit is calling you to live differently. And that is the beauty of the gospel. All of this test was just to point us to the beauty of the gospel. Here's why. And I really hope I don't sound sacrilegious in saying this. Now you're all very concerned. Because I've already sworn. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who defeated sin and death, so that you and I no longer have to pay the consequences of our sin, who gave his son out of nothing but love. And if you or I were the only human on earth, God would have loved you so much that he sent his son to earth to bear your sins, to take your sin and shame on his shoulders, take it to the ground when he died, leave it there, rose again, defeating death and sin for you because he loved you and he loved me that much. It is the greatest, and this is what I mean by sacrilegious, because I can't think of another word, it is the greatest product that there ever was or ever will be. And I don't like calling it a product because that is not what it is. I just can't think of another word. Here's the most confusing part about this. And the part about this that you and I can find the most hope. We have the greatest product and the marketing system has got to be the worst in the world. Because the marketing system for the gospel is me. And the marketing system of the gospel is you. That doesn't make sense. However, it is the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul writes, But we have this treasure, that treasure, I guess that's a better word than product, this treasure, <laughs> that treasure is the gospel, this, that it is alive and that it is active. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And if you're sitting here tonight going, wow, jars of clay, just know, culturally, you're viewing it wrong. A jar of clay is our equivalent of a styrofoam cup. It's good for about one use, maybe more if you're lucky. But we don't spend a ton of time washing it out. And if it falls to the ground and gets crushed, we're like, no, not this styrofoam cup. This is one my grandmother gave me. It's a styrofoam cup. We grab another one. And any archaeological dig that you go on, there are piles and piles of jars of clay. They were made cheap. They were made inexpensive. Their basic purpose in life was to be used till they broke. You chuck them in the trash heap. So there's this beautiful treasure that is the gospel, and yet he put it in these jars of clay, you and I, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That is the gospel. It is at work in us so that when we go through and, and Satan wants to beat us up because we didn't get it right again, 
Another week that I messed up. Another day, another minute, another second. When you think, oh, my awe is not in God. God isn't the biggest influence in my life. When we go through all these questions and Satan wants to beat you up and tell you you're not good enough and that wants to convince you that you were an accident or a mistake and that God has no purpose for your life, we can run back to the gospel and say, oh, no, that's actually how God demonstrates his power. That he trusted this treasure in a jar of clay like myself. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul writes, but he, speaking of God, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We point out our weaknesses because we can see how much we need God. We can see how much we need to run after Him, rely on Him, hunger and thirst for righteousness that can only come from God because it can and will not ever come from us. We must rely on Him. So again, conviction leads to confession, which leads to repentance. This is the hope and joy that is found in the gospel, not being beat down and kept down by shame, but being renewed by the gospel every day. That every morning we say we need to preach to ourselves the gospel every morning. It's so that we understand, number one, I need God. That we are humbled when we stop and think about all that God has done, is doing, and promises He'll continue to do for us. And God does not break promises. That we can be immersed in His love so that when we go out into the world and the world persecutes us and hates us because we live differently, that we can say, it just doesn't matter what other people think. God designed me with a purpose and a plan. God allowed me to go through the things in life because He knew that that would cause me to rely on Him more as I live my life not trying to hide my weaknesses, but showing people how much I must rely on God every day. In conversations, it is filled not trying to look good or keep up with, but rather it is, I am worthless and need God every day because God has a plan for me and I must follow after Him. That He designed me with nothing but love. That He designed me with purpose. That He designed me with an identity of being His image bearer, and there is no greater way that we could possibly view ourselves than seeing us through the eyes of Jesus who died and rose again for us. Going back to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, that's all the book of Romans before that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything that God has done for you, to offer your bodies as a living 
sacrifice. Holy means set apart and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We could make the translation in today's English of it just makes sense. When we view all that God has done for us and all that God's mercy has done for us, it just makes sense that everything we have, everything we are, and everything we want to be is pointed as a sacrifice to God and say it's all yours. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, meaning the world, everything around us, wants to turn us into its image. It wants to shape us. Maybe you've encountered um, marketing strategies in your life. Everything wants to tell us what we deserve, tell us what you need, tell us what you must have. It wants to conform us to the pattern of this world. But he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation starts on the inside. Transformation starts by us recognizing what the gospel is, making Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, us going to his word. This is how we know Jesus. It is him through his Holy Spirit transforming us as only he can and rather being conformed by the outside pressures of life. The Holy Spirit is transforming us from the inside out to the point that people notice this transformation that we cannot get credit for. It can only come from God in His power and His Holy Spirit through His Word. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For the rest of the summer, we'll basically be in the rest of Romans 12. I read this quote. It says, The Word gives life and continues to give life. The Word gives life and continues to give life. Jeff Vanderstelt says, This is how Jesus, or gospel, saturation, works. Jesus in you and working through you. When we come to a test like this and just think it's going to be exhausting to try to live up to the test, just know it is and it will show. When we come to a test like this and we say, I can't do this, but God, you can. Then we do not grow weary in doing good. When we rely on him, as Cam talked about last week, when we enter into that yoke, which is, says, come to me for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. If you find yourself exhausted and you're trying to do it all on your own, it's because you are. It's when you rely on God. It's when we spend that time finding rest in Him. We chase so many things trying to find rest. True rest. So a pastor told me a couple months ago, you need rest that sleep doesn't get. That rest that only God brings. Then when we find and we are saturating ourselves with Jesus, when you're saturating ourselves with the gospel, when you're saturating ourselves with God's word, we can't help but show 
the outside world, and they take notice. Not because of us, but because of God. That's how we point people to him. That's how we demonstrate just what a powerful God we serve. This treasure in jars of clay. In your handouts. You, have, you should have two cards. But before I do that, I want to take time and ask you, when was the last time, again, you don't have to write this answer down, it's not on the board, that you took time just confessing to God? That you took time just to confess, God, I'm trying to do this in my own power. Or maybe it's, God, I don't know you, and I want to. Maybe it's, God, I am not finding my awe in you, or, or God, I am not being transformed by you, or God, whatever it is, when's the last time you took that time just to confess to God? First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an incredible promise. So here's what I want you to do, and, and not here, right now. But I want you to write down, I want you to make a plan, maybe tonight, what does it look like to just go and confess before God? Maybe it is right now. But spend that time just talking to God. Number two, and we've mentioned this a lot over the last year, usually with a lot of sarcasm. I say, oh man, if there was only some way to make a schedule or set an alarm or set a reminder that we carry around with us all the time, we've got it. But make a plan. Make a plan. Set it in a schedule. If you have um, a lot of kids, and I didn't mean to look at you, Noah, when I said that. I apologize. Uh, I could have easily looked at it this way as well. Um, Talk to your spouse and just say, hey, can you just give me 20 minutes a day that I can just go read God's Word somewhere quiet? If your spouse says no, ask again with cake. I don't know. Uh, make a plan that you're going to follow through on to spend time in God's Word. That's where true change starts. Talking to God, meditating on God, spending time in his word. Make a plan and stick to it. Then you'll see we've also included what we call a pie squared card. Sarah, do you mind? Everybody should have that. Maybe you've already got one. You can have two. It's totally fine. What that pie squared card is is simply on the back. Write down the names of five people. That is, your best knowledge, they do not know God. They, there's some helpful hints maybe helping you find or think through. But Pi Squared is just pray. You just start by praying for them. If you've already got one, write the same names down. Put one on your mirror, one in your dashboard. Wherever it is, maybe one in your Bible, because you're, now you're going to be spending time in your Bible every day, by the way, because you've scheduled it. We know schedules never get messed up. It's okay to have two, but pray for them. Pray, God, open up the door for me. Let me know. I realize as preparing for this, I haven't had much of a chance. I have not been 
doing this. This is me confessing to you. So I said, okay, I got to go. And I just started praying. Number one on my prayer list, I'm not going to mention the name. We ended up having lunch for two and a half hours this week where I got to walk through the entire gospel with him and what it means. And I was just like, well, that was fast. The power of prayer. Pray for them. Invest in them. That's that first I. Invest in them. What are you doing to invest in their lives, showing that you care about them, that there is something you're willing to invest in, not asking them, hey, what can I do for you, but knowing them well enough to know what you can do for them, because chances are they're not going to ask you. Invest in them in some way, and then invite. And I always talk about the Apostle Andrew here. You see Andrew mentioned only a few times, but almost every time, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. The boy with the fish and bread. No, do you mind throwing me in my water bottle right there? Never mind, I'll get it. Sorry, thank you, Elijah. I don't know why I asked Noah, he's the furthest away. Andrew was always bringing somebody to Jesus. He brought the boy with the fish and bread. On Acts chapter 2, or I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, before Acts chapter 2, uh, he just brings somebody and says, hey, Jesus, these are Greeks, they want to meet you. Most of the other apostles, if I can assume, say, what's he doing with Gentiles? Andrew says, no, they wanted to meet you. I had to introduce them to you. What does it look like for us that we're just always inviting people to know Jesus? That we're living in such a way that people see us and say, I want to know Jesus, and that looks like a guy who can show him to me. So invite. Invite them to know Jesus. Invite them to your house. Invite them out for coffee. Invite them to the playground. Uh, invite them to get lunch while you're at work. Invite them to know Jesus. Invite them to church. Maybe not your church, maybe another church because they are busy Saturday nights. Know the churches in your area that you can send people to. So what I want you to do right now is we're going to take a few moments to close out this service, but I'm going to ask you as we've been doing and trying to make more of a habit. Right where you are with that pi squared card, you're going to pray. You're going to say, God, show me who to write down on this card. God, who are five people that you would just break my heart for starting right now? Who are five people that don't know you, but I shed tears over the fact that they don't know you? So right now where you are, quietly go to the Lord in prayer. Take two or three minutes, and then we will close in prayer.